I am not a big fan of card games. I don't enjoy playing card games, don't really enjoy playing board games either. Uh, when I, as I grew up, uh, I always just wanted to be outside playing sports, didn't want to be inside doing, uh, I, I viewed it as kind of pansy activities like playing games. Uh, but um, everyone else in my family loves card games and loves board games. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife was at Hume Lake, and so it was just myself and my boys, and they were begging me to play cards. I was like, I don't want to play cards. I just want to watch TV. Why can't you be like normal American kids? But they wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't listen. I was like, fine, we will play cards, but we'll play the one card game that I like. And so I taught my kids how to play poker. <laughs> and it went pretty well. I felt like I was back in college there for a little while. I got out the chips and we were doing all that. Now, I realize that 60 years ago, that would have been very taboo among evangelical Christians, at least to admit it. It probably still feels a little wrong to some of you, but you might be surprised to learn that there's actually no prohibition against gambling in the Bible. Now, you could argue from the book of Proverbs that it's not wise, and that's probably true. But there are many stories in the Bible that seem to show that God loves people who take risks and who bet on Him. And therefore, I think that poker can be a helpful metaphor for faith. My wife looked at the notes as we were sitting here right before my sermon. She looked at it, and she looked at me, and she rolled her eyes. (laughs) Which is not unusual. But I think it's a helpful metaphor Christianity is a religion of faith, not empirical certainty. Now, to use the poker metaphor, I think God has given us certain tells, certain evidences that he is there, certain clues of his existence and his character. And I think that eventually, all believers eventually see God's glory in the gospel so clearly that it becomes self-evident. But, first, there is... An empirical leap. There's evidence, there's tells, but there's still a leap of faith. And I think it's a test. Do you want to believe? God's testing you. The book of Hebrews says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. For without faith it is impossible to please God because whoever comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. The biggest bet that we must make in this life is whether there is a supreme being and whether it is worth seeking Him. And then, if you choose to seek Him, eventually you must bet on whether to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Master. But those are not the only bets we must make as Christians. I think a lot of people come in and say, well, these are the big ones, the big choices, and after that, you're good to go. But the Bible teaches that the path of following Jesus is one of constant risk based on your faith in Him. The more you put into the pot, so to speak, the more you push to the center of the table, trusting in the cards of God's promises, the more you stand to win. And I think that growing Christians play the game of faith in an aggressive fashion, continuing to make big wagers on God's faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that there will be a big payoff someday, certainly in heaven, 
for believers who make big investments in God's kingdom right now, who are willing to take a risk and make a bet, a wager on God now. On the other hand, there will be a much smaller payoff, if any, for those who follow Christ in penny-ante fashion, just putting in enough to try to stay in the game. Just like playing Texas Hold'em, the amount of gain or loss in God's kingdom is commensurate with the amount one is willing to risk. And I think, personally, the thing that makes Texas Hold'em so exciting is the all-in bet. I don't know if any of you have watched the world uh, tournament, poker tournaments. They're, they're the, what, when they get really exciting is when somebody makes that all-in bet. When somebody, one player puts everything he has into the pot by pushing all his chips to the center of the table, and that forces the other players to match him or to fold and leave the game. Now, if a player has built a big stack, big stack of chips, it's hard to go all in because he wants to protect what he's accumulated. The bigger the stack, the harder it is to risk it. And having someone call you to go all in is the ultimate test of your faith and the strength of your hand, your cards. Will you push your chips to the center of the table, trusting that your cards are sufficient? Or will you play it safe and fold your hand. And I think that's how God plays poker with us. There will come a time, I don't think it's right away when you first come to Christ, but there will eventually come a time when God will put you all in. In other words, he will say, I want to see if you truly trust in my faithfulness. We've been together for a while, but we've now reached a point where to have a full and satisfying relationship with me that continues to grow, nothing less than full commitment and trust will do. But unlike Texas Hold'em, when God asks you to go all in, he does it to give both you and him a big win. To show that your faith is genuine and his promises are true. To give you greater joy and bring him greater glory. It's hard to trust God in that way, though. It goes against our human nature and it goes against our culture and our upbringing. As responsible middle-class Americans, we're taught to hedge our bets. Put a little money on one hand, a little on another, but don't put it all in one. Get as much education as you can. Find a secure job, but have a plan B in mind. Diversify your portfolio. Invest conservatively. Save your money. Don't do anything that poses a significant risk to your health or financial security. Play life safe and you'll be okay. And then in addition to that, cultural Christianity, American Christianity, teaches us to just put a few chips on God. Go to church, do some good deeds, say your prayers, and who knows, maybe it'll pay off and God will help you. But even if he doesn't, you've hedged your bets. You're secure. You don't have to worry. Our lives don't, often don't look substantially different whether God comes through for us or not. Because we don't really need him to. And yet I believe that God will call every Christian and every church to go all in on him at some points. To obey his word and to follow where he is leading us with such radical faith that we have to say, look, the only way this is going to work is if God comes through. This is beyond what we can accomplish humanly. Our security, my security is in God and I have no plan B. I can't make this happen if he doesn't. Now, I'm not saying we should be foolish and just try to do crazy stuff to to force God to protect us, to force him to do a miracle. The Bible condemns that behavior, calls it testing God. But what I'm talking about is obeying God in faith, 
Talking about a radical trust that is willing to go all in to obey God's word no matter what and to follow where we believe God is taking us no matter where. And that's the pattern, I think, that we see over and over in the Bible. We're going to study a story, an example of it today in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you can turn there with me, or your Bible app makes it really easy, but if you have your Bible and you want to use the old school Bible, uh, it's almost halfway, not quite. It's before Psalms. So if you get to Psalms, just flip to the left a little bit. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And we'll start in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Mayunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, of the Jews at this time. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying that if calamity comes against us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, a descendant of Asaph. And he stood there in the assembly and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert of Jeriel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohavites and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. 
After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went off to carry off the plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord, and that is why it is called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. And the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the, peace of Jehosh- and the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. So some quick background here, if you kept up with that long story. The Israelites are God's chosen people. It doesn't mean he loves them naturally more than other people, but he chose them to be his priests, a kingdom of priests who would represent him to the world. And one of God's rules for them was that they were not supposed to make treaties with the surrounding nations, the nations around them, for protection. Now, the Jews were very small because the Israelites had actually separated into, they were already small, but they had separated into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so the kingdom of Judah is very small, very, very small and compared to the huge empires around them. And so they felt vulnerable. They felt insecure. It was tempting to make treaties with powerful nations for protection. There's lots of modern examples. I can think of uh, Taiwan would be one. Think of Taiwan, this tiny little island. China claims that Taiwan belongs to China, and so it's an enemy. And so Taiwan, there's no way they can, they can compete with China in terms of military power and numbers. And so they've made treaties with, with the United States and with Japan and with all these other nations to try to give them some security. And the Jews felt the same way. Treaties are like insurance. They give you security. They help you to feel less vulnerable. But God commanded them not to do that for two reasons. God knew that they would begin to worship the gods of the powerful nations they made treaties with. It's just natural to serve and to worship whatever brings you the greatest sense of security. If your security comes from having money, money will be your God. If it comes from being liked and having a good reputation, then the opinions of certain people will become the most important thing in your life. And they will control how you act and live. Whatever it is, if your greatest sense of security and well-being comes from something that is not God, that thing will lead you away from God. And so God told his people not to make treaties for protection because he didn't want them to find their security in these powerful nations and the gods they worshipped. But the second reason that God forbid these kind of treaties is that he wanted the glory for saving and protecting his people. He wanted them to find their security completely in Him so that He alone would get credit for blessing and protecting them. 
He wanted all the nations of the world to see that Israel didn't need to depend on powerful countries. It didn't need to worship idols. It didn't need to build up a massive army with lots of chariots because the God of the Jews is real and he protects and he provides for his people. But sadly, most of the time the Jews failed to trust God. They didn't find their security in him. They, they offered prayers and sacrifices, but they didn't go all in on God. They also made treaties with powerful nations, and they, they prayed to those gods too, and offered sacrifices to those gods. And before we judge them too harshly, we have to remember that they're doing the same thing that we often do. They're hedging their bets. They put some chips on God, but they also put some chips on other things, other gods, other nations. And so they think, well, if God doesn't come through, then these, maybe some of these guys will. But King Jehoshaphat is different. He hears that this massive army is coming to invade his country. But instead of sending messengers to Egypt or to Aram for help, he resolves to simply seek God and to trust God. And we need to see here that Jehoshaphat is scared. He's terrified. He's not like some idealistic, religious, you know, dreamer up on a mountain somewhere meditating, completely out of touch with reality. He gets it. He understands how bad the situation is here. But he's also determined to depend on God. And so he proclaims a fast for the whole country and he has everyone come together to pray. And here at Nova, we need to do the same thing. When we feel threatened and afraid, when we feel called to, by God to do something, but we see obstacles that seem insurmountable, then we need to resolve to seek God together through prayer and through fasting. And oh, that we would learn to pray the way that Jehoshaphat prays here. He begins by ascribing all power to God. In verse 6, he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Man, let's pray like that here. Even when we are most desperate, even when fear and anxiety are twisting our insides and we're, we're tempted to shrink back, we're tempted to go find security in other things and put some chips on other things, let's remember that God is all-powerful and that nothing is too hard for Him, that He is God over the nations. And let's pray, God, power and might are in Your hand. No one can withstand You. And man, when you pray that way, even if you don't feel it at first, even if you feel like you don't quite believe it, as you pray that way, supernatural strength and hope and confidence will fill your hearts. And it will give you the power to stand firm in faith. And so Jehoshaphat begins, after he prays this way, then he begins to praise God for his promises and for what he's done for his people. And that's one of the great reasons for reading the Bible, reading Scripture to know God's promises, and to see examples of how he's been faithful to his people in the past. It's also a good reason to read Christian biographies. And I've said this before, and I know it sounds boring to read biographies and autobiographies, but man, when you read them, you see God's faithfulness. doesn't mean that those, those people had an easy life. Often the strongest Christians have the hardest lives. But they can testify that God was faithful over and over and over again. And so Jehoshaphat knows Scripture. He knows God's promises. He knows the stories of God's faithfulness. And that's what gives him the courage to rely on God in this situation. And so finally, he does all that. He, he prays and he, he praises. And finally, in verse 12, he pleads for God's help. 
He says, oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Jehoshaphat says, God, we are powerless. Help us, please. And God responds by saying, don't be afraid. The battle's mine. I will fight for you because you are depending on me. And so Jehoshaphat and all the people respond by falling on their faces in worship. And then some of the Levites, who were the worship leaders, they stand up and they begin to lead people in singing and praising God. And I think that worship is the natural response when you go all in on God. It's natural because to go all in on God, you have to believe what the Bible says about God. Who God is. His character. And if you believe God's character... You can't, help, you can't help worshiping a being like that. And when you surrender to God's great power and you surrender to His love, you just naturally find yourself loving Him more and more and wanting to praise Him without holding anything back. If your worship is dry and cold, perhaps you haven't gone all in. Perhaps you're holding back because what you really worship is in the Nova Kids room, or in your pocket, or in a bank account, or on TV later this afternoon. I say perhaps, because our emotions are funny things. They're influenced heavily by our brains, and our brains are prone to weakness and prone to malfunction, just like other parts of our bodies. And as a result, you can go for long stretches, feeling depressed, not having much emotion in worship, even though you love God deeply. And if you're in that boat, I don't want to condemn you today. But we need to remember that worship is more than just lip service. It's not about just saying some nice things to God with the hope that he'll bless you for it. God doesn't want your flattery. He doesn't need your flattery. He wants your hearts. He wants to be the center of your affections. And for Jehoshaphat and the Jews, God was their only hope. And that caused them to go all in and worship him with all their hearts. And that worship continued as they marched into battle with the worship team leading the way. Can you imagine how those musicians must have felt marching out in front of the army? I was trying to think of what would that be like today. I was imagining, let's say that for some reason our, our community just got really angry at Christians. And so there's this angry, murderous mob surrounding our building. And they're demanding for us to come out or they're going to come in. And we're, so we gather together and we're like, okay, we better go out and face these guys. And we're like, but we're going to have the worship team lead the way. So we're like, Andrew, Josh, uh, yeah, you guys go ahead. You go out first, Connor. And then uh, if you survive, maybe we'll come in after you. But as they sang and they praised God, God fought against their enemies. And I think the writer of Chronicles is trying to make clear that even though the victory belongs to God, the human means through which God gave the victory was praise and worship. As we worship God, we are doing spiritual warfare. Singing is not just a nice prelude to the sermon. It's not just a way to kind of lift our emotions a little bit and entertain ourselves. It is war. We have real demonic enemies who are trying to destroy us through temptation, discouragement, sickness, despair. But when we praise God and we resolve to go all in on Him, He is fighting for us. And so, musical worship is not something that we should take lightly. I think the passion of our worship is a good gauge of our faith in God and our hunger to see Him lifted up. If Satan can cause us to give up in despair or to find greater joy and security in other things, then worship will just become this meaningless religious routine. We won't see 
spiritual growth and, and vitality in our lives and in our church. But if we go all in on God like Jehoshaphat did, then our worship will reflect that. Many of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries who went with him to the Aka tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. The Akas were known for cannibalism and for killing any foreigners who tried to contact them. And so on January 8, 1956, these five missionaries stood at the edge of a river preparing to meet that tribe and share the gospel with them. And as they waited, they were scared. They weren't unrealistic. They were scared. They knew what this tribe could do and what they were known for, but they also knew that they needed to go all in and obey what God was calling them to do. And so they wrote a song. They said, We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know, yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. And God protected them, right? You might say, no, God didn't protect them. They were murdered. They were murdered. But God protected them from a fate worse than death. He protected them from cowardice, from unbelief, from wasting their lives and finding their security in worthless things. He protected their their faith. And he used their deaths as a catalyst to bring the gospel to the Akas in such a way that eventually almost the entire tribe trusted in Christ. And I'm sure that right now in the presence of God with those fellow Akka believers around them, those missionaries have no regrets about going all in. May God protect us just as he protected those men. And may we go all in on him. Let's pray.